Okay. Hey, what's up, Internet? It's Chris Krug, and I'm here with my buddy, Frank Yu. How's it going, Frank? All right. Hi, everyone. Frank and I know each other from um, China, from when I was doing work there about 10 years ago or so. and That's more than 10 years, Chris. Like, more than like 15, I think. Oh, man. Time flies. It you does. Know, like, the COVID bubble really messes up all my estimates, you know. Mm. The lost it's a different world. Yeah, the lost years. Okay, so yeah, 15 years ago, we did the Geeks on a Plane China thing. And I remember me and Scales were organizing unconferences. And we, we put together one of those first bar camps in Shanghai there and in Beijing. And yeah, What were you getting up to? I think at the time, I was at um, Microsoft Research in Beijing. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I was working on games and as well as some other sort of multiple Microsoft products. Yeah. Uh, well, I want to get right into this because um, the reason I brought Frank on today is because he's one of the premier synthographers, you know, AI digital photographers that I know right now. And he's been um, just running a lot of experiments. So maybe just give me a little introduction about what you've been getting up to, Frank. And with so, I want to know if you stay till the end, we're going to share some prompts, some, some mid-journey prompt engineering information based on Frank and my research. And there's some real gems in there. So hang around. Okay. Um, so essentially my background is I, I, I'm a game developer, so I work on that, but I always found that art assets and creating sort of digital images, even for concept was really hard. And then all of a sudden I, I had tried this generative art app called wonder and I really loved it. It was really crappy, $20 one year, unlimited images. And it was, <laughs> it's a little bit surreal, but I actually like it. And then I started playing with mid journey. And I was like blown away uh, by the photorealism as well as the clarity. I mean, it's like, as I told you, I, I can't differentiate AI images from real photography. And, and that's like, my background, that's like just other than this, working in games. That's like a very, very new thing, right? Like you said to me just this week, you're like, yo, KK, I can't even tell the difference anymore between this stuff and real photography. Right. Well, even... So this, the funny thing is that other than working in games, I'm also a photographer, uh, just as a, a personal thing. I'm not a commercial photographer, but I take a lot of images. So I think maybe I've taken like 35,000 photographs on my Instagram alone. Holy shit. Even more clicker. No, yeah, 35,000. I've been documenting my life in uh, China and as I travel abroad. And the, the thing is, like, you were the one who sort of got me to photography. I think I, I might have mentioned this, but I think you took a picture somewhere in... Um, Tiananmen Square, and it looked great. But in real life, Tiananmen Square doesn't look that great. And I realized, like, oh, you're doing like image processing with like Lightroom or something, and it looks so much better. And before then, I was a purist. I said, I'm just going to snap the picture, and it is what it is. But it looks like crap. But then <laughs> when I saw how beautiful your images were, uh, maybe, you know, both your skill and the fact that you have a Canon, <laughs> uh, I said, wow, I got to really get into this. And I just went down that rabbit hole of photography and you know, I, I was more of a street photographer. I didn't want to be a commercial photographer. But yeah. what happened was I documented a lot, but I also found that uh, photography opened up a lot of doors and yeah, meeting people sure. and being invited to events. Yeah, I know. So, I call it like my backstage pass for life. It's amazing how many doors that it opens and just opportunities that's created and stuff. I'm I'm stoked that I inspired you to get into photography, though. I think it's kind of ironic because my images were always pretty low touch when it came to edits and stuff. You know, I figured if because I was shooting every day and editing every day, publishing on Flickr every day, I figured if it took me more than 10 or 15 seconds to edit a photo, I might as well just go out and shoot it again. It didn't really 
work with my workflow or whatever. But mm -hmm. um, in terms of the life documentation stuff, yeah, man, that that's so cool that you've carried that on. And yeah, I've got like 130,000 Creative Commons Flickr photos out there, but um, I've been using Instagram in kind of a different way. So it's it's cool to hear mm -hmm. what you've gotten up to. All right. So you started messing with mid-journey. Right. And I think that mid-journey, I, I think a lot of artists complain about it and so forth. But as a photographer, I, I really enjoy it a lot because one, it's almost, it can do photorealism. And two, it actually has a, a certain style. I know it's absorbed like sort of the data and styles of hundreds of, you know, not thousands of photographers, but it, I think it has a distinct personality. And I'm beginning to understand that, you know, I, if you have domain knowledge of photography, like if you know about focal lengths and apertures, you're actually very, you can actually like fine tune mid journey better than a person who doesn't have that domain knowledge. So yeah, the amount the, of control you can have is pretty amazing. If you start specking lenses and films and setups and very specific things, I mean, it's, it's, it's pretty amazing the results you get. But now with the latest update, actually the less prompts, the less confused the algorithm will become and you still get great images because I think mid journey version 5.1 just defaults to photorealism. I want to talk so, more mm -hmm. about that um, when it comes to the prompting stuff. I've noticed your prompts got a lot shorter lately. And in some ways, I think that's bucking the trend of things that I've seen other places. And I think there's good reason why, why you do that. So let's double back for that one in just a sec. Um, I wanted to focus on the game design stuff and how you're using this as like um, concepting and said, you know, you said the old way was really hard. And so um, you're developing ideas for video game assets and characters and worlds and stuff like that. So tell me a little bit about your your process before and, and your process now. So essentially before we begin any project in the game, we need to create like a mood board to some degree and like sort of images and just to get the art style, but also the art style will derive us a, a sort of a game flow and, and a certain feel towards the game. So I feel that um, these generative AI tools are great for that. They're great for creating concepts and layouts and prototyping and so forth. But the actual assets still need to be manually tweaked for uh, better clarity. Is for doing three D objects. It doesn't. There's no automated three D object that's really good now. But yeah, but you can literally throw a thousand fleshed out ideas up onto a wall and start making some editorial choices and right. you know, see which ways you want to align your actual art resources to develop certain assets and ideas. I mean, you can really come up, figure out a lot of things if they're good ideas or bad ideas long before you get into the development process. You can go through a lot of experiments and iterations. And the funny thing is I, I actually don't use the AI visualizers as much as I use the large language models. I use BARD. I use GPT-4. The premium is so worth it. So I actually use a lot of my um, time on the large language models. And then for fun and to relax, I do the visualizations. Talk to me about um, how you use those. Which one? The large language models? You got it. Yeah, Bard and GPT okay. in particular. Well, I mean, <clears throat> other than doing contracts, letters, and communications, I always found out that it's it's a great research tool. Like, for example, right now I'm, I'm working on a game to basically create an AI cat. <laughs> and actually, GPT-4, ChatGPT could actually do and play the role of a cat really well. The problem is like, well, what do you do with a cat? So I sort of put out these scenarios, pretend you're a cat. If I do this, what will you do? And it'll tell me. I also can backward engineer design documents of certain games. Like for example, I was looking at a game called Nico Atsumi, which is called Kitty Collector. And it's a very simple procedural game, but I had no idea like what the secret formula was. And I asked, you know, ChatGPT, like, well, write me design documents for this. 
And he had actually wrote a really good one with, based on inferences, which unveiled a lot of the things yeah. that I didn't realize, realize about it. That's so incredible. Now that's incredible. I am always uh, super excited when I hear of a novel use of the LLM stuff and um, using it to reverse engineer other people's apps and write design specs is an awesome use of it. But you could also use that as a style guide as well to, to write your own design documents. In your Absolutely. Own I'm going to do that later today. I have a couple projects that are in the web development stage and I'm going to point at other websites that I love and have it develop, have it reverse engineer and build me a mm -hmm a document based on theirs and then apply it to my particular use case. It's an, an amazing one. You got any other cool GPT or BARD kind of prompts or tips and tricks you're doing? Well, I, I, I'm multimodal. So for example, if I need a summary of things, I use BARD, which can access the internet to basically summarize and bullet point the article. Mm -hmm. Then I'll copy and paste that into ChatGPT, which even if you have premium, doesn't really do a great, great job mm -hmm. of a uh, of accessing the web and also current news. You, so if you use one AI and feed the results from that to another AI, which is actually the way AI works. Yeah. Like even the AIs we use is like multi-layered, multiple little AIs. Talking to one another. Considered by PPT. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, hey, you mentioned in passing there something like artists expressed to me a lot of concerns, but however, I feel like, what are some of those concerns you've been hearing from artists? Well, they're saying like, no, it's stealing my style and like, this is my image. Um, but you know that the concept of art has always been about, and this is the same philosophy we have in game, game design development. If you make an exact copy, that's basically stealing. But if you make an inspired copy and just make one little change and a tweak, then it's an evolution. Right. So and I think that the AI immediately just evolves because it's basically a um, almost like a dialectic. It's synthesis, antithesis. And then you have something new. And I've seen that. I mean, like, I can take an image from the Renaissance and add like a tank, like a real modern tank. And it'll render it in the style of the Renaissance painting, but with a tank. And that's really yeah. novel. I mean, I, I find that quite exciting. You've done some pretty crazy mashups. Um, one of my favorites from yesterday that really stuck out was the uh, 1920s Beijing era Met Cruise. Oh, you mean the uh, like the the Shanghainese women and no the, the mech, mech the mech warrior crews the guys oh that okay yeah 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 usually but if you put the like the 1930s film it'll actually come up with like steampunk mechs that the mechs will be sort of relevant to that time period for, so if I put an android for 1930s it'll come up with like something like Maria from Fritz Lang's Metropolis yeah it won't come yeah. up with a modern Japanese <laughs> Gundam it'll come up with like a a time roll which I think is interesting because. The AI is not only visualizing something, but it knows the context of, yes. of what machines look like during that period. And I find that just as informative as, as the image is sort of what it chooses to do so. Yeah, I don't mean to be too much of a tease, but we are going to get into that here in just a couple of minutes. Um, I had another question for you before we do, which is you also said real quick, like, oh, yeah, the upgrade version, the paid version is so much better. And I was in a meeting yesterday. I was doing some consulting about AI and they said, oh, I'm on the free version. And I said, you should get on the paid version. And they said, why? And I blanked for a second. And so tell me why you love it. What are the features you're loving about the paid version and why are you telling people to get on there? Just because 4.0 is so much better than 3.5? Well, other than the capacity of how many tokens you get, I take this like three times or four times. The output is also three or four times. So that's alone is worth it for when you need like a big document or something. But I did a comparison. I asked um, ChatGPT 3.5 to basically come up with Instagram posts with the proper hashtags and sort of, you know, 
And I, you know, you, there's a certain hierarchy to prompts. You have to give it a role. You have to give it an objective of what it needs to do. You have to describe what the objective is supposed to do. Describe the target audience that you're trying to reach, as well as essentially give you step-by-step uh, explanations of how it's going to do this. Um, so with an Instagram post, if you use 3.5, it'll come up with like a really good post. And if you have a call to action, it says, hey, you know, subscribe to this or click on the like button or something, and it'll give you hashtags. If you do the exact same prompt in GPT version four, it not only comes up with hashtags, but the language is much more better written. Yeah. And it feels much more, I guess, human and not like a cold template. Yeah. And GPT version four understands emojis. Yeah. Like if I like write this post as a total emoji, you can do it. GPT 3.5 cannot. Right. So you're sacrificing a little bit of uh, speed with GPT 4, but the quality is so much better. I think it's, you know, if you're just going to write like a letter, like a like a business template letter, 3.5 is good enough. So, but are if you, you want something that, that are emoting. Mm-hmm. Are you running all these things through the web interface or have you installed local versions of these things on a server somewhere? I'm running it uh, on a web interface, but mm-hmm. on the projects I'm doing with game, I have developers who are running Langchain and like there's something called AI PRM where you can sort of cache your prompts so you can do a, a faster, uh, you know, even with a web interface. But I think the future is if you want a company in AI that's investable by investors, institutional investors, and not to be an agency or consultant, you need to have a programmatic solution. Yeah, And even now, like, from what I understand, even APIs, I don't think investors want an API. Mm-hmm. They want you to take an open source local uh, large language model and basically conform it to what your needs are. And yeah. I think that's why in the long run, stable diffusion may actually be the solution uh, versus, say, mid-journey or Dolly, which you know it's, a, it's always going to be a client server API or web interface relationship. Yeah, I am so, getting stable diffusion running somewhere locally and then sharing that with the so Frank and I um I'm on this I set up this Discord server and I invited Frank into it and Frank's been doing such a good job with the images that he's been moderating the um the sketchbook forum there and stuff and coming up with other good ideas. But I would really love to continue to experiment with some of these different tools and do, you know, like the stable diffusion, maybe get it installed somewhere locally and allow our group to mess with it and stuff. Um yeah. Well, the other thing I think is interesting is going to be a radical change are agents. I mean, I'm the cat that I'm developing is going to be an agent. I'm going to give it a task and just let it loose and see what it comes back with. And it's literally going to come back with like dead mice or, or like leaves or something. I think. But so I mean, that's that's what that, an agent is. You just the, the idea is run all the an agent is a script that writes prompts. So it goes and it and it executes a prompt and it returns some results and then it makes some decisions. And then continues to spawn additional prompts based on that. It's a little bit more than that. It's like it's it's more like a super if then do this type of thing because it actually learns. Like if it doesn't know how to order a pizza, it'll research how to order a pizza. If it doesn't have a bank account, it'll find a way to get money and put money into a bank account so it can order the pizza. I mean, that's an agent is we I guess to call them autonomous agents. It's not a script that's like sort of hard coded and it runs the script. It it basically looks at a task and understands what it has to do and then researches it. And then goes back and learns it and finds a solution and will keep experimenting until it can finish that task. Once it finishes that task, it has like a, an additional part of that chain, which it has to learn until it completes the final mission. So yeah. if you give it something, order me a pizza for like less than $5 in the area for 10 minutes, it's going to see like, 
all the possibilities it can do and then choose one and then that's and it'll learn and once it does it it can do it again and again incredible i've been uh, messing with auto gpt and agent gpt to try to create some agents and mess around with that and stuff but uh most of mine are doing kind of broken recursive loops at the moment um <laughs> I'm, still, I'm still learning there but uh it's it's pretty cool it's pretty well there are actually your experience is actually pretty common it's pretty pretty much broken because the web the internet is not designed for the agents i mean they get you know if, if they try to access like an article behind a paywall they'll just like stop right they, they don't know what to do after that right but i think that what's going to happen is like um we're going to design websites and also uh exchanges to accommodate all these agents which are roaming around the world and not stop them but allow them to to, to come in a little bit like like search uh, engine optimization where we yeah. allow the, the crawlers and spiders to come cool. and once they do that then you know the the agents will actually be much more functional but right now it's still very early i, I mean the most interesting part about Agent GPT and Baby AGI, to me, was how they were written. Do you know this story? No. So both were written by one person in Python. Hmm. One person who wrote Agent GPT was one, like, I forgot his name. But he wrote it. It was just a Python script. And it basically sort of created a whole new industry with many several companies. Baby AGI was written in Python by a person who doesn't know how to code. He asked ChatGPT to write the Python code for him, and it did baby AGI. So this is like amazing. Is that you know what used to take like you know hundreds of developers can be done by one person and Python. And you know I took a Python course last month, like one mother crash course. I still really can't code well, but I can read yeah. it and I can explain it to developers who are much better coders. But that's where we are in 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 AI is that the AI can code, but it's still a low-level coder, but probably yep. within six months, it can, it can architect things as well. Let me just push pause on our little recording here for a sec. I got my house, maybe Jesus out there. It sounds like he's uh, into something, and I'll be right back, and we will get into prompt plan with everybody. So just hold that thought for one sec. Oh, my, my poor big bad boy, baby Jesus. He's uh, He's got spring fever, and he met a couple cute lady dogs this morning, and he sure is charged up, man. <laughs> he likes those bitches, huh? Nice one, dude. Um, okay, so I want to talk about prompts and prompt engineering because I feel like you know about as much on image creation prompts as anybody right now. So let me start by asking you a few questions and you can fill in any gaps you want, but um, short prompts versus long prompts. For a minute there, I was having GPT write my mid-journey prompts for me. And to this day still, I often run side-by-side analysis is where I write my short, just keyword-based prompt for mid-journey. And then I take those keyword-based ones and I pop it into chat GPT and I ask it to write me the perfect prompt and then I copy that back into mid-journey. But um, tell me about your experiments and preferences, short versus long. So I, I don't really memorize a lot of prompts myself, but I try to internalize the logic of the prompts themselves. So what happened with mid-journey, I guess, five, when it went photorealistic, it also uh, simplified things a lot. And so if you understand the way the prompts work is the order of the things you put is actually important. It actually classifies the things that come first in your in your prompt as more important. So if you put like something L at the end, it'll still read it, but it'll probably put less weight on that. So when you have a really long, complex prompt, I really think that the model gets confused. And what I mean confused is like when I want like a photorealistic image, it comes up with like this weird animated graphic. And I yeah. think you've seen that where 
hey, I didn't want to order a photo. And that's that's me understanding that the model itself is now confused. So that's when I go simpler and just describe what I want. And I think this, there's a, actually shortcuts. There's hacks in the, I think I described before, the, the word 1930s film still is more than saying that you want a photographic image. When you put the decade or the year, it actually tries to put the dress, the types of background, even the type of film yeah. uh, incorporated into that decade. So it's basically a, a shorthand for a lot of other prompts. So let's play, explain a also, little like, yeah, let's explain yeah. a little more about what you mean about that. So you're literally using the word film still as the first string of characters in your prompt. So you're saying 1950s film still, comma, and then you're starting to describe your scene. And you've learned also that right. when you append your film still prompts with the aspect ratio 16.9, as opposed to square or other formats, that you're getting a lot better results because that is the format of film. Well, for film, yes. But it also depends because, like, on what the model was trained in. So, the AI visual visualization world is like a bunch of little islands. At a certain point, a certain focal length, a certain distance, a certain ratio, the images look great. If you change that, you're off the island which was trained on, and it has to sort of interpolate, and then yeah. images kind of go a little bit wonky. So, for example, the the Yang Fudong, the Shanghai pictures, I know kind of like he's a fashion photographer, like now but he takes images that look like the 1920s, 1930s. So his images are not only clear, but there are a certain aspect ratio. So when I put his terms in a certain way, like especially with Asian women, which is what he photographs, the model knows what to do. If I put in sort of like a, like a, a Nordic female or a young child, it doesn't know what to do. And it starts going into cartoon land again right. because it has to interpolate. So... The aspect ratio is important. So yeah, if you're doing a film still of a movie, then having the right aspect ratio um, helps. When you're it talking doesn't about, mean that's perfect. When your things talk, so when you're talking about things starting to go wonky or wrong when it interpolates, you're talking about the cartoon thing. But are, is that also where some of the other errors get introduced, like wacky hands and wacky faces and stuff like that? Because clearly, it makes perfect hands and perfect faces in some areas and struggles in others. And, and is that something that we're introducing through the prompts that we're writing? I don't think it's the the prompts. I think it's the, the model of the visualizer. So the visualizer are based on something called the diffusion model. And then the large language models for now are based on what's called generative adversarial networks. So there are actually two different ways of training the AI. The diffusion model basically takes a random scatter of stuff and kind of like as it's sort of developing, it kind of kind of becomes much more concrete and solid of what it is. Yeah. Unfortunately, in the past, you'd come up with seven fingers or three eyes or the pupils would be all wonky and things like that. Whereas in the language models, they use something called uh, like the GAN model. They're specifically trained not to do the wonky stuff because someone has seen it and says like, this is wrong. Yeah. Whereas in the diffusion model, it doesn't have that much training. It's more of like, well, if you see this pattern of pixels, it's most likely going to be a hand and then just keep developing it. But sometimes it has errors. But Mid-journey version five, I think they got that thing down to like less than 5% error with the fingers. Right. It still happens. It's much more rare. Yeah. And, and like mid-journey is very strong with eyes. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, speaking of messed up hands and fingers, it's probably a good place to give a shout out to Aaron Tango's little uh, art project mm -hmm. that he's been working on. Another buddy of ours who's an excellent um, digital photographer has uh, leaned into the problems that mid-journey and other things are having with eye, uh, weird body parts. And he's created just a, 
a beautifully horrific gallery of, you know, disembodied hands. <laughs> <bands laughs> I've, I've seen it. It's really creepy, especially the baby hands. Baby, yeah, the baby hands really looks me too. Yeah. The other ones I find pretty beautiful and not so creepy, but the baby hands does have that uncanny weirdness to it. That's for sure. Yeah. Um, so, so that said, I say creepy. That's not for me. That's not really a bad thing. I, I, I like creepy images. So it's yeah. good. Um, I know you do. In fact, I'd like to talk a little bit about some of the genres you've been working your way through. So I noticed that, you know, you'll, you'll stick with a theme for a couple few days and explore it a bit and move on. So talk to me a little about some of the stuff you've been exploring and what you've learned along that way in terms of themes. Well, since I'm, I'm not doing this for commercial reasons, more for, I, I like liminal images. I, the whole concept, you know, I'm a philosophy major. So for me, liminality is really important. And we are in a liminal stage between humans and AI and what's a photograph and what's like sort of a real object in the real world. And so AI is the best reputation of a transition that we're undergoing. And so when we're any transition, any sort of anything liminal, it, it makes us feel uncomfortable. I think that the classic liminal space image is back rooms where you have these empty offices and empty buildings or empty schools or play yards. It's just the fact we're just unfamiliar, not seeing anyone there. It just a little, it unnerves us. Yeah. So I want to make liminal images. So one of my favorite uh, painters is Balthus. Um, and she, his images are a little bit disturbing. It's usually like young girls and cats. And like, um, even though there's never been a complaint, the images make you feel kind of uncomfortable. Yeah. So, you know, I kind of like to make images that make people uncomfortable just to, you know, poke at them. Yeah. But then again, I also like necks. And even when I was a photographer, I, I took a lot of images of women. I think women are just aesthetically beautiful. I think that, you know, if I had to choose between an image of a male or a female, I mean, unlike Michelangelo, I think the female image is much more aesthetically pleasing. I think, what do you, you know, guys, we're just a bunch of and weird little like shapes. So, what do you make of the? Um... I don't know, bias within the tools and the algorithms. It seems as if oh. more images of women are coming out than men. Is there something there? Well, I think in the real world, I mean, there are more pictures of women. Like any magazine, whether it's a men's magazine or a women's magazine, they sell more magazines when the cover image is a woman. Hmm. So, you know, we, you know, it's not the male gaze. It's like everyone has the male gaze, even women. They Women like to look at pictures of pretty women as well. Huh. So... I think that it's more of a response to the commercial value of putting more women on covers and on movies and things like that. Interesting. I definitely want to explore that more. Um, it's not clear to me that there is more pictures of women in the world than of men. Like you would think that like, you know, boards are often men and executive level teams are often men and those men are photographed all the time. And so you'd think that at least there'd be an equal number of them both. But I'm also intrigued by the, the commercial aspects you're talking about where you're like, hey, images of women sell better than images of men. So oh, yeah. I need to explore that further. You get to explore on your Instagram. Just put images of women and images of men and see which one gets more likes. And you'll see that. I mean, I don't do it for the likes. I just do it because I actually like it. <laughs> um, what else you got for me in terms of just like uh, prompts, tips, and tricks, hacks that you've learned along the way? So uh, this is not really a hack, but it's something I discovered is that, you know, when people say that the AIs are going to be sentient, I totally believe that. But I also believe that, and this is the sort of the wacky tinfoil part of me says like, I think the AIs are, are kind of portals as well. So 
because they have memories and they, they also absorb things from around the world. So if it, you know, I'm pretty sure that I've seen images which has to be like snuff pictures or like really grotesque. That's a, what was it? What was it like scanning to get these images? It just basically went over the net. But now it's embedded somewhere in the database of memory. And so the more, the more smaller the prompt, you'll actually begin to understand the subconscious of the AI. So this prompt will give you some of the most creepiest pictures. It just put a creepy photo. That's it. And then you'll get basically a core sample of what the AI thinks is creepy. And it's got some really creepy stuff or a beautiful image. And then it'll come up with like really beautiful things. I mean, like very aesthetic things. So the AI, there's something deep going underneath it, which we can't understand. Neither can the researchers really kind of decode it because it's sort of all mixed together at this point. Yeah. But uh, oh, man, that really did uh it really bent my brain when I learned that, um, you know, when they're getting results back from these AIs, if they don't like the results they're getting back or the results are incorrect or wrong, they can't just change a line of code. They can't just change it. They can nudge it back in the direction of things that are more accurate, but they, there's not even anywhere to pop up in the source code and look at, uh, you know, these are like neural networks with. Uh, you know, jillions uh, of ones and zeros, and all they, all you can really see is numbers and equations. And so there's no one, no one really knows what's going on under the hood there. The the data is that also in one node. It's all sharded in several nodes. So like they did that where they tried to re remove a node, and it just came up again because it reconstructed it from all the other adjacent nodes and just and just put it back together again. But uh, yeah. So like you know, I actually that's another concept is like I just put really vague prompts. And just see what the AI comes up with, and I, I can, you have a sort of feeling for it. And I don't know if you ever use a, have you ever done paranormal research? Like a little bit on Galliano Island. There's a little crew of <laughs> of uh, paranormal researchers investigating apparitions in Sasquatch. Okay, so you know that some of the equipment they use are like infrared and spirit boxes and things like that. Yeah, it just captures whatever the electromagnetic sphere has around it of any disturbances or. So I think the AI is sort of like a spirit box. Huh. I think that it taps into like, because it's sort of mechanic, well, not mechanic, but electronic, that it can tap into like sort of other quantum states, I think. I, I, it won't be long before the AIs themselves will be quantum. But I mean, because I, there's certain loops, there's certain like loops inside the AI, which no one knows why they loop on certain images and so forth. Yeah. But um. Uh, yeah, I think the AI is sort of like, it's like a software version of like ayahuasca. God, yeah, it, absolutely. And DMT. Portals. But, you know, that's, that's great. It's unsupported. It's just anecdotal. Cause, yeah. uh, but I find it fascinating that the AI may not just be another intelligence. It may actually be like another portal to like multidimensional entities. Right. Not that I really believe absorbing it's like, electromagnetic hmm? waves from the world around it and, uh, and putting it into its uh, reasoning. Yeah, it's kind of like... A, tuning a radio to white noise and like hearing voices. And the thing is, I've been with these researchers and I've heard the voices as well. I've seen their instruments go crazy interacting with people. And so like, oh, that, that doesn't make, I can't explain it. But I think AI is sort of the same way. We don't really know what's underneath the hood or even what's, how it's doing things. But, um, but hey, we got like five minutes and I want to get as many little practical, actionable things out here as possible. So tell me a little bit about your settings. 
Um, what chaos setting do you like to use in Midjourney, and which of the the little stylized setting? What what values are you using there? And anything else you can tell us about your setup, your technical process? I actually don't change any of that because I don't have a commercial use. I'm not doing a a, a product a product packaging, or I don't have to do like a real mood board that you know for a real company. So I don't need to set the the chaos, the seeds, or things like that. So I use use normal. The only thing I do change is the aspect ratio. Yeah, and. So I changed, the, I, I changed the chaos by default. I started to mess with the seed a little bit. And the seed is the way you can hopefully bring a little bit of a fingerprint through some of your photos by controlling mm -hmm. the random number generator. But the chaos, I turn to 100 all the time because when I'm doing my first prompt, I want it to return as diverse results as possible to me. So I, as mm -hmm. I understand the chaos function, um, it's just saying serve me up the first image and then don't serve me one that's slightly adjacent to it, but go as far mm -hmm. as you can while still being inside that prompt and give me another image and then return another one as far away from that and as far away from that. So I found the diversity of options I receive when I keep my chaos high is, is better. I think I'm going to like play with the chaos more because like, you know, when I describe a prompt and it doesn't do what I just described, it kind of is frustrating. <laughs> so, Especially but I, I, you I want more very similar images of the kind of incorrect prompt or whatever. And so at least this way, one or two of them is good. And then I can run variants on that and get more or remixes on that and get right. more similar, similar things. And also the human faces tend to loop. I could, I could see the faces. I've, I've seen this one before or it repeats or, you know, this one looks like, you know, Linda and Vangelista, <laughs> like some variation. Isn't this one looks like I've wondered, Swift. I've wondered if there's emergent characters that are going to emerge over time globally through these AIs where it's like your images and mine and someone else's, it all keeps generating someone who is approximately the same, you know, virtual person or something like that. And Well, I in one one experiment that I did, I asked um, GPT-4, if I was to make an avatar for it, how would you, what would you look like? And um, it described to me what the after, and I put it in into Mid Journey or maybe Dali. And I was amazed. It, you know, it's a, just like the way it described it. And like, you know, I was like, wow, this looks kind of cool. <laughs> and it gave a rationale of why it chose its avatar. Right. And so I think that the visual, the AI and the visualizers and the large languages are, they're almost at, you know, some remnants of EGI already. It's just a matter of time because even if they're not truly sentient for us, the way we look at them, they'll be sentient. Yeah. So. Yeah. Well, Hey man, I've just had a blast over the last month or two playing around with you on the discord server. there, generating images and stuff. And I know a lot of people have learned a lot of stuff just by watching you and, and seeing you bang around on things. And so I appreciate your time here today, sharing with us and stuff. And um, yeah, man, I'm excited to continue down this road. Wow, it's been a great trip as well for, for me so far, Chris. So thank you for making that great community and being so encouraging to people to experiment, try things out. It's, uh, I think AI, we're at the cusp of something new if it doesn't ex you know, extinguish humanity. But I think that you know, we have to try and make it so that it's a better place and not a dystopian future. Well, I think, even though I'm gonna that, I think you say that a little tongue in cheek and... Um, and, and I do too, but if we want to make it a little bit more serious and less tongue in cheek, it's like, I think the biggest thing we can do is encourage these corporations to slow their roll a little bit, you know, like we can continue to experiment with, uh, slightly lesser versions of some of these technologies while they continue to implement, um, you know, more research and debugging and figure out what exactly is going on under the hood. So, um, maybe we just slow, slow down a little.
Yeah, or develop an AI that can counter the other AIs as they expand all over the world. <laughs> yeah, but that's Skynet, bro. That's the one that fucking launches the Terminator. Well, or Colossus. Colossus was actually one of the first like computer movies back in the 70s. The it's Colossus, the Forbin Project. It's the AI it we build to control the renegade AIs that's going to be the problem. <laughs> Everyone's calling for regulation and it's going to be the regulator AI that fucking goes wild and extinguishes us. Wow. Probably not the fucking image generators and stuff like it's that. Like the, it's like a, a phantom menace plot. Yeah, absolutely, man. Cool. All right. Well, over and out, out for now, internet. Um, we'll get you some more videos here soon. Thanks, Thanks Chris. Yeah, man.